Welcome to the Southern Ohio Synod podcast. I am Bishop Suzanne Darcy Dillahunt, and I serve as your bishop, which means I'm the Synod's pastor, caring for congregations, lay people, and rostered ministers, and I accompany you in your ministries. I am so glad you have joined us for our episode today. In the city of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, there's a hot meal served three times a day, every day of the week for those in need. Every Sunday morning, the congregation I served in Lancaster prepared and served a hot breakfast to those who were poor or homeless. They had been serving this breakfast for over 25 years. When COVID hit in March of 2020, the leaders of the feeding ministry had to decide about breakfast. The leaders never asked the question, should we continue serving breakfast? Instead, they asked, how do we continue to serve breakfast under the constraints we are under? And they did just that. Hot breakfast to go became the way of being. When I talked with one of the leaders of the ministry about the commitment to continue serving breakfast, she answered me, we trusted that God would guide us and we couldn't watch people go hungry, especially right now. In encountering God in word and sacrament, the leaders of this ministry were inspired to trust God and all that God does, and they were inspired to continue to care for God's people during an unprecedented time of challenge. Theirs was an act of discipleship. In our first podcast on discipleship, I used a definition of discipleship from Professor Mark Mattis. For him, discipleship happens when, through the preaching of God's Word, believers are created and formed to live by trusting God's promise to be God and by loving the neighbor in service of creation's well-being. In this podcast, I want to look more closely at the components of discipleship. During COVID, another change was necessary for the congregation I served in Lancaster. We had to start live streaming worship. We had talked about doing this for years, but were forced within weeks to make it a reality. Suddenly, there were tape marks on the floor telling me where to stand for each section of the service. There were sound checks and camera angle tests prior to worship, and there was makeup. After the first few live streams, it became obvious that the glare from my bald head was a distraction to the viewers. So my colleague bought me the right shade of makeup and taught me how to apply it. My Sunday morning routine started to include powdering my head. This is one of the many things that we had to do to get through worship during COVID. We are a people who focus on getting life right. I would even say we are a people who focus too much time and energy and getting life right. We apply this same mindset of getting it right to discipleship. When we think about discipleship, we fall into the trap of thinking that discipleship is about pleasing God either with our purity or our passion for justice. 
In the Lutheran tradition, we do not see discipleship as getting life right. We just see discipleship as when God sets our lives right. God's action transforms our lives. Discipleship starts with God setting us right. For Professor Mattis, discipleship is not about us getting it right. Discipleship is a matter of death and new life. Professor Mattis states, and I quote, God uses the law to reduce sinners to nothingness and the gospel to create new beings in Christ. In this light, discipleship is more properly viewed as something God does to believers rather than something that believers do for God or for the world. This law-gospel approach to Christian life resists reducing discipleship to acquired techniques. Instead, it views discipleship in terms of Christians faithfully living out their vocations as baptized children of God. Through the preaching of God's word, believers are created and formed to live by trusting God's promise to be God and by loving the neighbor in service of creation's well-being. End quote. From this above definition of discipleship, we can explore five concepts. First, we are converted and made disciples through being convicted of our failure to get ourselves right with God. This conversion through conviction brings about new life. Second, we can say that God's word is performative. That is, that God's word does something to us. Third, we can say discipleship is not merely being pure or getting justice right. Fourth, discipleship is living out the new life God has given us. And fifth, out of fear, love, and trust of God, people can love one another and work for the well-being of creation. When my wife and I moved to Columbus, we discovered that it took longer to make a cup of coffee in the morning. Now, there's no profound reason why. It was that we had to change our patterns and our habits. For 15 years, we lived in the same house, had a rhythm of where to find coffee cups, creamer, and coffee pods. I could be half asleep and make a cup of coffee in the morning. Once we moved, everything changed. The coffee machine was in a new place, coffee cups were in a different cupboard, the refrigerator was on the opposite side of the kitchen, even the kitchen light switch was in a new place. It took more time to make coffee because we were living in a new place that required new behaviors. Discipleship is about living into a new way of life. To better understand the new way of living, Let's now look more closely at each of the five concepts of discipleship that I just outlined. First, we have a conversion through conviction that brings about new life. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, we read, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
This text is commonly found in the order for confession and forgiveness and accompanied by our admission that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. Luther's explanation of the Holy Spirit section in the Apostles' Creed states, I believe that by my own understanding or strength, I cannot believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. All these powerful lines convict us of a difficult truth. We cannot, and by nature will not, believe in God through our own devices and desires. We cannot save ourselves. It is what we call the law that convicts us of this truth. Yet we do not despair, but hope. For we are told that being saved does not come from our own devices and desires, but through God's gracious work in Jesus Christ. So we move from trusting ourselves and our desperate acts of self-preservation, our acts of self-justification and our acts of self-righteousness. We move to being justified by faith through the grace and goodness of God. From this transformation, we get a new way of living. We are given a life that trusts in God's goodness instead of despairing at our own incapacity to get everything right. A second component of discipleship is to acknowledge that God's word is performative. Simply put, God's word does something to us. We have all experienced the moment when someone that we adore says to us, I love you. Our countenance and lives are changed in that moment. When it is announced that Jesus died for the salvation of the world, we hear God say, I love you. We are changed upon hearing those words. The old ways of trying to make life work and from which we so much despair are cast aside. I don't have to rely on my own strength to make it all work. I can be forgiven when I fall short. I am loved no matter what. These are all life-changing declarations. Much like when our heart's desire says, I love you, and our lives are changed, so too does God's word change our lives. The third component of discipleship is understanding that discipleship is not merely being pure or moral. Being pure or moral is dependent upon one simple factor, to get life right. Will we be pure enough? Will we be moral enough? And simply answered, no. And when we realize we can never make ourselves pure or moral enough, then we despair, which leads to self-preservation instead of being concerned for the well-being of others. Self-justification instead of trusting in justification by faith through grace and self-righteousness by trying to find meaning in our own work instead of finding meaning in God's work. Fourth, 
Discipleship is living out the new life that God has given us. St. Paul in Romans 8 states, To live according to the Spirit is to set one's mind on the things of the Spirit. To set one's mind on the Spirit is life and peace. That's why Paul can say, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. And life with Christ is new life, because Christ brings new life. And the fifth component of discipleship is that disciples fear and love God so that creation is served. In the explanation of the first of the Ten Commandments, which reads, You shall have no other gods, Martin Luther writes, We are to fear, love, and trust God above all things. For each subsequent commandment, Luther begins each explanation with the words, We are to fear and love God so that. If we look at the commandments 4 through 10, we notice that the first three reflect on our relationship with God, and commandments 4 through 10 reflect upon our relationship with others. Each of those seven commandments that address our relationships with others speak to how we serve the well-being of others in following those commandments. The capacity to follow those commandments is rooted in fearing, loving, and trusting God above all things. Our capacity to trust and love God is a gift that God gives to us. As we are made people of faith through the power of God's word, we are able to trust and love God. Living in trust, we can serve one another and all of creation. Growing up, I had three different kinds of pants. I had play pants, school pants, and church pants. And each pair of pants served a particular purpose. The play pants were for, as you guessed it, play. They would get dirty and wear out, and that was okay. The school pants were for, you guessed it again, school. They were only to be worn to school, and heaven forbid that I would play and get dirt on my school pants. Then the best pants I had were church pants, worn only on Sundays for church. I was not to play in them, nor to wear them to school. Discipleship is like wearing our church pants to play. You see, when the temptation is to say that discipleship is about purity or about acts of justice, we compartmentalize, we make it have to be about one or the other. But what happens if, as disciples, we can do both? What happens if we wear our church pants while we play? Let's take a look at two psalms to find some support for doing this. Psalm 25, verses 20 to 21 read, O guard my life and deliver me, 
Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Please make note of the word integrity. Psalm 26, verse 1, continues that thought. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. This word integrity appears in both psalms. Simply stated, integrity is not eliminating the call for for purity or the call for justice, nor is it choosing between purity and justice. Integrity is living with the two in tension with each other. In his book, An Unsettling God, Professor Walter Brueggemann writes that God's people are commanded to live in God's presence and to do works of justice. And he points out that there's a paradox created by these two commands. To live in God's presence requires that one is suitable to live in God's presence. Nothing imperfect or impure can survive in the presence of God, since God's call is to purity. The command for justice requires God's people to be in the presence of those who are considered unclean. Consider the many times Jesus is criticized for associating with outcasts and sinners. To be engaged with one who is unclean is to become unclean oneself. If unclean, then one is not pure and cannot stand in the presence of God. It appears then that the call for justice works against the call for purity, and the call for purity works against the call for acts of justice. Yet God's people are not called to choose one over the other. They are called to both. They are called to wear their church pants while they play. Professor Brueggemann states that the word Scripture gives us for a life lived in purity and doing acts of justice is the word integrity. Brueggemann writes that the command of justice and preparing to see the face of God, that is purity, live in profound tension with each other. He speaks of the twin traditions of obligation and that they cannot be harmonized and they are not to be chosen one over the other. So if the notions of purity and morality cannot be separated, how are they to be linked? Brueggemann refers to the notion of integrity as the way the two are linked. He writes that the term integrity in scripture means to be whole, complete, coherent, innocent, unimpaired, sound. He goes on to write, integrity means willing one thing, that is to live a life that is undivided, to be altogether unified in loyalty and intention to God. One's trust in God and one's acts of compassion for others are of one and the same mind. This example of integrity occurs in Genesis 17, verse 1, when God speaks to Abram. It reads, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. 
Literally, that is, live with integrity. It also occurs in Job 27, verse 5, which has Job saying, Far be it from me to say that you are right until I die. I will not put away my integrity from me. Understanding integrity then opens our eyes to how we trust God and how we love others in the world. Brueggemann states that a person's trust is undivided and unwavering. Israel affirms that in its role as God's partner, every aspect of life, personal and public, cultic and economic, is a sphere in which complete devotion to God is proper to Israel's existence in the world. One's trust of God shapes how one lives out their personal, public, cultic, and economic lives. And that fear and trust of God leads to honor and love others and to care for the well-being of the world. One's engagement of others in the world in a way that honors them by pursuing justice and equity can be done in a way that tells and demonstrates that one loves and trusts God more than any other power or principality in the world. As a brief aside, I want to offer definitions of justice and equity. Simply put, justice is when good deeds are rewarded and bad deeds are punished. Equity is when the rewards and the punishments are applied equally among all people, regardless of who they are. For example, a person runs a stop sign in front of a police officer. There will be a consequence for doing something wrong. That consequence is a citation. That's justice. Equity means that no matter what the person looks like or who the person is, if they fail to yield the right of way at a stop sign, they will receive the same consequence. Disciples are those who trust God's promises to be God and love their neighbor in service of the well-being of creation and are guided by justice and equity. Living in such a way is described as living in integrity. And Brueggemann concludes that in living in integrity, first of all, we start to believe that there's a serious, serious alternative to the way things are done in the world now. That we don't become overwhelmed or resolved to the way that things are broken, but we see another way. And living in integrity means that this alternative depends on regularly being engaged with God in God's work in the world. And living in integrity means that this alternative way of living is a mutual interaction with God that costs much and requires great risks both from us but also from God as God takes the risk to show love and mercy and forgiveness. My wife and I started the Christmas tradition of visiting New York City each December. We both love that city, and we wanted our son to fall in love with the city as well. Our December visits to New York included a stop at the largest toy store in the country, visiting St. Patrick's Cathedral, and seeing the Radio City Music Hall Christmas Spectacular. 
Now, my wife and I really enjoy all these things, but watching my son experience them for the first time and each year afterwards was even more amazing. His eyes opened wide, his mouth was hanging open. Sometimes he giggled and sometimes he cried. When he first saw the Radio City Rockettes or Santa on the stage, when he saw the five floors of toys at the toy store, or when he saw the inside of St. Patrick's Cathedral, wonder and amazement overwhelmed him. So just a month ago, my son, now a college sophomore, texts us and asks, can we go to New York City again this year? His wonder and his amazement has remained with him. Seeing a whole new world in his visits to New York is part of his way of living now. Being a disciple of Jesus is like that. It is seeing a world we could never have asked for or imagined. It is encountering a love that we only catch glimpses of in our relationships with others. It is having our worldview broadened to the point that our old ways of thing, seeing things crumble around us. Discipleship too often has become this restrictive and suffocating way of seeing the world. It has become a battle to be right instead of doing what is right. Discipleship is life in a whole new world, a world revealed to us through the love and mercy, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Discipleship is life filled with truth, grace, reconciliation, trust, goodness, compassion, and imagination. It is no wonder when Jesus invited people to follow him into this new way of life, they simply dropped everything and followed him. In the Gospel of Matthew, we hear, as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And Jesus said to them, follow me. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. This is Pastor Rebecca Great, the media ambassador and storyteller for the Southern Ohio Synod. And I want to thank you again for joining us for this podcast episode. There is a discussion guide available for this podcast that is located on the Synod's website and in the description box for this episode on our YouTube channel. We hope this helps congregations and ministries be able to use this information with your councils and your other ministry leaders to help us all grow in our discipleship. If you have questions about any of the content or want to continue the conversation, uh, you can connect with Pastor Tim Menser by sending him an email. His email address is tmenser at southernohiosynod.org. Until the next time we gather on this podcast, remember that we are stronger and better together, joining Jesus in the restoration of the world.